0: Tonight we're going to read Genesis 4 together, so uh, go ahead and get your, your Bibles out. Let's turn there together. We are going to read the whole thing, so get comfortable. Genesis chapter 4. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fatty portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his to Abel his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, "Where is Abel your brother?" He said, "I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper?" Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujahel. And Mahujahel fathered Methusahel, Methusahel, very creative. And Methusahel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives, the name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zilah. Ada bore Jabel, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zilah also bore Tubalcane, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Cain was Namah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zilah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Thank you, God, that in the midst of this city, Lord, tonight, we can call on the name of the Lord and you meet us here. Thank you, God, that you give us your word that is alive and it's working. God, it's transforming. I pray that tonight, God, as we step into your word, Lord, that it would transform our minds, God. It would uh, renew our hearts. God, that we would see just who you are through your word tonight, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, a couple disclaimers as we start on uh, Genesis chapter 4. Number one is that there's just way too much material here to get through in one sermon. So uh, if you leave here tonight and you say, what, didn't we talk about that or we didn't cover that? Go talk to Lomas. Um, The second is there are questions that are raised in this text. Where does Cain's wife come from? Um, It says he goes to another land, the land of Nod Who the heck are those people? Um, uh, Some questions that aren't answered in the text And here's the truth of it uh, The author who wrote Genesis 4 He was more concerned about Adam and Eve Cain and Abel and their relationship with God And that is what he is trying to teach us about tonight So that's what we're going to focus on So we've been studying uh, Genesis over the past several weeks. Uh, Specifically, we've been looking at the entrance of sin into the human story. And last week, we learned about the curse that was laid down on Adam and Eve and the serpent. In chapter 3, verse 15, God says uh, there would be enmity. There would be conflict. There would be a battle that takes place between the seed of man and the seed of the serpent. And now in chapter 4, we begin to see this battle take place. We're going to look at three specific points from this chapter today. Uh, The first is the seed of Cain. The second is the blood of Abel. And lastly, the promise of God. When Tarek was saying about teaching our children that Jesus is the hero of every story, it's true in this story too. In verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1, it says that Adam knew Eve and she became pregnant. You can imagine that this was a very exciting time for the first uh, mother and father, um, that as Eve's belly began to swell with, with new life month after month, that there was excitement and there was joy, but more than anything, there was hope hope that this would be the seed, that this new life, he would be the one that would crush the head of the serpent, that would restore what was lost in the garden, that they would have now access through this new son, this new child that was coming. He would be the one to restore right order and peace with God. And then on that fateful night, because babies always come at night, usually like in the dead, in the middle of night. Uh, you can imagine the cries of Eve as she is wailing to bring forth this child. And she is feeling the full weight of the curse from chapter 3 of childbearing. And then there's a sound. A sound that every parent can never forget as a newborn child fills its lungs with air for the first time and declares its arrival with a cry. I've got three beautiful, amazing daughters, little girls, and uh, I can tell you I remember where I was standing and what was going on in the uh, delivery room when I heard the cry of each one of my girls for the first time. It's amazing. And now Cain is born Who is Cain? What does he represent? Cain is the firstborn of man, carrying the imago Dei, the image of God passed down from Adam and Eve. But he's also the firstborn of the seed of the serpent. Cain is actually the first casualty of sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer puts it this way. He says that they, Adam and Eve, become the proud creators of new life. But this new life is created in the lustful intercourse of man and death. Cain is the first man to be born upon the cursed ground. The whole story of death begins with Cain. Another son is born, Abel. And with him, is born the first-sibling rivalry. In the life of these two brothers, the firstborn of uh, the cursed world, we see more than anything the escalation of sin. The sin is on the fast track in the heart of humanity. The text tells us that uh, Cain followed his father's footsteps with Adam and became a worker of the ground. He was a farmer. This would have meant that uh, He would go with his father early in the morning and head out to the fields. And they would work in the hot sun all day toiling. And then come back in the evening and they'd report to Eve about the the condition of the soil. And what's happening with the crops. The hope of the harvest. They were cultivating. Using what the creator had given them to bring new life out of it. Abel, on the other other hand, was entrusted with the sheep. The sheep. He was a shepherd. This would have meant that Abel would be off in a field, away from his family most of the time. The shepherd can't leave his flock because sheep are really super dumb animals. And they need a lot of tending to. They also need protection from predators. I imagine that both of these boys were extremely hard workers. And then as a family, they would go to church on Shabbat, Sabbath together, usually Saturday. They would go to church, and it would be a little different than we experience it. The first family would go before the Lord to an altar that they had built, and Adam and Eve would go first, and they would lay uh, an offering on the altar, and they would pray to the Lord and give thanks for his mercy on them as sinners uh, for, for his goodness. And And this was an offering. It was different than an atoning sacrifice. We read about the atoning sacrifice. It's a blood sacrifice to atone the sins of the people. But that happens later. Adam and Eve wouldn't have known what that sacrifice is. This is different. This is an offering, a thank you. The first fruits to be given to God. And Adam and Eve, once they get up from the altar, then Cain would come. And it says that he brought some of the fruits of the ground. And he'd put it on the altar and give thanks. And this is how I imagine it plays out from here in my mind. That as Cain is getting up from the altar, he hears something coming from a distance. And he turns and he looks and coming down a hillside... Is Abel he's carrying something around his shoulders something different and as he gets closer Adam and Eve come to greet their son who they haven't seen in several weeks and and they see what he's been carrying on his shoulders he's got a ewe lamb and it's perfect white wool coat without a blemish perfect proportions it's beautiful. It's the very best of Abel's flock, the first fruits of his work as a shepherd. I imagine that Abel's father and mother would come close to see the lamb, and Abel would tell them about uh, his work in the field and uh, and looking through all the different lambs to find just the right one, and then Abel would prepare the lamb. And lay it on the altar, the fat portions of the lamb, lamb on the altar, and he give thanks to the Lord for his goodness. And while this is all happening, Cain is watching. And inside of Cain begins to burn the seed of the serpent, jealousy, hatred, death. Remember, it says that Cain brought some of his fruits from the ground, but that Abel brought his first fruits, the best. Someone else was watching this drama unfold. It says that the Lord was watching, and he had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he did not have regard. Did you catch the way the author tells us about that? It says that God regarded the man... And then the offering. That God knew exactly what was happening here in the heart of Cain and in the heart of Abel. And he judged them on their heart. And then on their gift. I remember a story about a wealthy man. And um, he was reading the newspaper and he read about the poor and the homeless that were in his community. And his heart was moved to compassion to do something for, for these people. So he contacted a, a soup kitchen in their community. He said, hey, I want to put something on for, for these people. Let's get as many as we can together, and, and let's just uh, let's take care of them. And so uh, they began to plan this, this evening meal, and uh, he sits down, the, the wealthy man sits down with the program director at the soup kitchen. He says, what are you planning on serving in this meal of ours? And... The woman flippantly kind of looks back and what do you think? Soup and bread, maybe coffee. And the man says, no, that's not going to work. What do you mean that's not going to work? And the man says, do you know what my favorite meal is? If I had to choose any given night when I sit down what I'm going to eat, this is what I want. I want filet mignon and Snapple peach iced tea. That's what we're gonna serve these people. And the woman says, Are you crazy? <laughs> we're talking about hundreds of people. Do you have any idea what that will cost? And the man says, If it's good enough for me, it's good enough for them. Why would I give them less than what I would wanna have? What a contrast! What a contrast. That we would freely give of our best, the first fruits. So let's get to the heart of it. When we put our budget together at home and we sit down and we're doing the numbers, do we take out the very first and give it to God? And then with what's left, we plan how we're going to live our lives and what we're going to spend our money on? Or is it reversed? Where we go through all our bills and all the things we want and all the things we need. And then what's left over, literally the leftovers. There you go, God. This is yours. For some of us, giving of our first fruits means uh, we're going to have to sacrifice. To give our best will cost us something. And that will require something else of us. Faith. Faith. Hebrews says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And here's how this ties in with Abel. Martin Luther said, the faith of the individual was weight that added value to Abel's offering. Abel's faith added weight to his offering to God. See, Abel looked at all of his lambs Maybe there was only a few. Let's say there were five. He has five lambs. And he could have easily said, God doesn't really need the best lamb. This one's pretty good. Maybe he knew that that several of those wouldn't survive, that they were going to die off. And he's thinking in his head, well, here's what I'll do. See, if I keep the best lamb, then I can breed it. Right, And then as my flock gets bigger and healthier, uh, then, then, God, you will get my best. That's not what Abel does. Abel had faith that God would provide what he needed for the work put before him. He was able to freely and cheerfully give his best to God. Hebrews 11.4 says that by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, Abel's faith, though he died, he still speaks. See, when we lay down our first fruits at the altar of the Lord as thanksgiving, we're saying, Lord, I trust you. Lord, I know that what has been given to me is not by my own doing, that you are my provider. And because I know you're a good father, a loving father, I trust you that you'll provide what I need. And even beyond that, that you give me the desires of my heart. So I give to you first before I take anything for myself. And this step of faith marks a huge step in our walk with the Lord. That we trust, that we have faith give our first fruits when we're able to cheerfully give to the Lord our best. Now contrast that with Cain. Cain didn't have this relationship with God. It says that he became jealous of Abel, angry, and his face fell. He was dejected. And the Lord sees this all at work as well. God knows the serpent's schemes and so he reaches out to Cain, intervention, right? The Lord said to Cain, "Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. It's desires for you. You must rule over it." This passage is extremely important because it marks the first time God mentions the word sin. And how does God describe sin? He describes it as a predator. A demonic predator who's waiting, crouching, desiring us. Like a stalker just around the corner waiting to claim its victim. And there's three important distinctions we need to pull out of this uh, talk about sin. First is that God warns Cain. He gives him a heads up. He says, listen, you're going down the wrong road. Turn. This is going to be disastrous for you. The second thing is we learn that sin is on the pursuit. It is actively seeking us. James 1 says that, let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Now listen to this. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. This passage gives us a very clear picture of temptation being like a seductress, like a mistress who is turning up the desire inside of us. And once our desire lays down with temptation, sin is born and it will lead to death in due time. But the third thing we see is that sin can be mastered. It must be mastered before it consumes us. So what does Cain do with this counsel from the Lord? Does the same thing that most of us do. He turns from wise counsel and he moves toward temptation, which is luring the evil inside of his own heart. Instead of mastering sin, Cain steps through the door and is consumed by it. Verse 8 tells us that Cain made a plan in his heart, uh, a premeditated scheme to do away with the object of his anger, to take revenge on his source of jealousy, to destroy his brother. Cain must have imagined somewhere in that twisted mind of his that if he removed Abel, if he gets him out of the picture, somehow he'll be elevated. Somehow he'll move into that place of regard with the Lord. And here's where we see just how twisted the evil one works. Because God clearly instructs Cain, if you give with a thankful heart, you will be accepted. But Cain doesn't like the terms of that deal. So he creates his own backdoor strategy. Cain calls to Abel and they go into a field. And then Cain, in a crime of passion and jealous rage, he rises up against Abel and he kills him. And here we see just how far escalated sin has become in the heart of man from Adam and Eve to their firstborn son. How far this violation of shalom, the peace of God, has come from the garden. We see Cain, Cain's desire was laid down with the serpent's temptation and it brought forth literal death. The first death. Walton, in his commentary on Genesis, he points out that with the first murder, Cain has usurped God's authority to a greater level than his parents did in the garden. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, understanding good and evil, but Cain takes it a step further. Cain takes God's, on, God's the only one who has the right to give and take life, and God, Cain steps into that role. And takes the life of his brother. Cain's not happy with just living in the role of cultivating life from the ground. He wants to be the master of life and death. He wants to be God. So now let's read again verses 9 to 15. Because we want to see how God reacts to Cain. lest anyone who found him should attack him. There's three important points here that we want to pull out of God's reaction to Cain. First is that God questions Cain. He opens the door for Cain's repentance. And then God judges Cain, cursing him and separating him from his family. Lastly, God has mercy on Cain, marking him and sending him into a new community. The Lord said to Cain, where's your brother Abel? God is offering Cain a chance to come clean, to repent and receive forgiveness. But instead, Cain responds the way my kids respond most of the time. I don't know. Why does the bathroom have an inch of water on the floor? I don't know. Why is your sister crying and bleeding? I don't know. Again, we see how far man has fallen in such a short time. Remember, when God came into the garden, this should remind us that when God came to the garden and and he called out to Adam and said, where are you? Adam came forth and he said, I was hiding. I was afraid. Now God says to Cain, where is your brother? And he flat out says, I don't know. Not only that, but is this my job? Am I supposed to be looking out for Abel? Abel? Again, Walton in his commentary points out the irony here that Adam and Eve, when they reached for the fruit in the garden, they were trying to achieve knowledge of good and evil. Now, Cain, when questioned by God, he claims no knowledge whatsoever of evil or any responsibility. Cain has moved from hiding like his parents to outright denial. And even beyond that, we see his unrepentant heart In this accusation, he throws back to God. Is this my job to look after Abel? Cain, who's the firstborn man, carrying the Imago Dei, the hope to redeem man and crush the serpent, he's utterly corrupt and far from God. God responds to Cain with this powerful and poetic statement. He says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground we have to ask, what message is Abel's blood crying out? It's crying for justice. Justice. Something has to be done here. My blood, my innocent blood has been poured out. Do something. And God being perfect love and perfect justice, because those two things go hand in hand together. He curses Cain for his sin. Cain will no longer farm. He'll no longer yield fruit from the ground. He'll no longer cultivate life from the ground. Those days are over. Cain will be pushed out of his family community and become a fugitive and a wanderer. And then, again, we see Cain's heart by the words that he speaks. Out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks My punishment is more than I can bear. And then he says, whoever finds me will kill me. In all, in this cry to God, Cain refers to himself seven times. Me, 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 me. I know it's annoying when I do that, but I'm trying to drive home the point. Noticeably absent from this cry of Cain. Is anything about Abel, his victim? Is anything about Adam and Eve, his broken hearted parents? Cain's eyes are completely and entirely on himself. And that's what Martin Luther actually calls sin. He says that sin is man turned in on himself. From the very beginning, when Cain laid the sacrifice at the altar of the Lord. He held back the best for himself. When he took his brother's life, he was trying to satisfy himself. Uh, when he pleads with God, he's trying to save himself. But repentance, the repentance that God is looking for, it's not about us. Repentance is actually the dying of ourself. Laying down our sinful desire and turning from it, moving in the opposite direction, back towards shalom, peace with God. So what does God do with Cain and his unrepentant heart? He strikes him with a bolt of lightning from heaven. And then he takes his deep fried carcass and he hangs it on a tree and he says, this is what happens when you don't listen, people. Okay, you know what? I'm just sick of you and I'm done with you, wretched. I should have just stuck with dolphins and golden retrievers. They just pay attention a lot better and they're really good natured and you know, I'm sick of you guys. I'm done. Someone get me a drink. (laughs) Actually, that's my reaction. For a lot of years, Honestly, I struggled with God of the New Testament who was compassionate and forgiving and loving and kind, and then the God of the Old Testament who just seemed um, judgmental and and had anger and vengeance pouring out all the time. But to be honest with you guys, uh, the truth is I wasn't looking at the heart of God in these stories. See, as Cain... Selfish, sinful, rebellious, murderous Cain is weeping before the Lord. Even in all of his self-focus, weeping before the Lord, we see that God has compassion on Cain. He doesn't put him to death. He spares him. Even more than sparing him, he puts a mark on Cain. A new identity on Cain he associates himself with Cain, saying that now, Cain, wherever you go, people will know that you are with me. You're mine. And guys, this is the overarching story of all of scripture, the entire Bible. God is madly in love with us. He is long-suffering with us. He is patient with us. He goes to extreme lengths to hold on to us. And here we have to ask ourselves, why doesn't God just end Cain? Why doesn't he just kill him? Why isn't he just finished with Cain? After all, we see in the rest of chapter 4 what happens through the line of Cain, right? Uh, He has a wife and begins to bear children. Uh, He begins a city and he names the city after his own son. How's that for nepotism? And then we reach Lamech. The story pauses at Lamech. It says Lamech had two wives. He introduces polygamy, this abomination of marriage. But even greater, we see Lamech's heart in verses 23 and 24. Listen, this is what he says. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Tim Keller points out here that Lamech is actually bragging about his vengeance, about his rage and his anger. He's saying that if a young man... And this word used here uh, for a young man, it would have meant a boy between 12 and 14 years old. If a young man even strikes me, and that word strike would have mean a scratch or a bruise. If a little boy even bruises me, I will have unending revenge. Vengeance, 77-fold, far more revenge than was promised for Cain. And so we see through this line of Cain more and more destruction and sin and vengeance. So why doesn't God kill Cain and be done with it? Here's why. At the end of chapter four, the author rewinds, goes back to Adam and Eve. It says that they have another son, Seth, Seth is a replacement for Abel, and God's promise continues. Seth begins a new lineage of men, and at the end of that chapter, it says, at that time, they began to call on the name of the Lord. You see, as God marks Cain, sparing him from death, God looks down through generations through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, through Judah and then David and Joseph, and he sees the Christ child, born of the seed of the Holy Spirit, the incorruptible seed, planted in the womb of Mary, and he's perfect. He's without blemish, the first fruit of God, He's beautiful. And God says, because of Christ, Christ, the perfect sacrifice that will be laid at the altar of the cross before me, I will spare Cain. Hebrews 12 says that the blood of Christ speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Speaks a better word. Remember, Abel's blood was crying out for justice, justice. Someone do something. But Christ's blood poured out on the cross. It speaks a better word. It is finished. It is finished. Christ's blood ends the line of Cain. Christ closed the story of the garden. Bonhoeffer says this. Christ on the cross, the murdered son of God, is the end of the story of Cain. And thus, the actual end of the story. This is the last desperate storming of the gate of paradise. And under the flaming sword, under the cross, mankind dies. But Christ lives The stem of the cross becomes the staff of life. And in the midst of the world, life is set up anew upon the cursed ground. And in the middle of the world, the spring of life wells up on the wood of the cross. And those who are thirsty for life are called to this water. And those who have eaten of the wood of this life shall never hunger and thirst again. What a strange paradise is this hill of Golgotha this cross, this blood, this broken body. What a strange tree of life, this tree on which God himself must suffer and die. But it is, in fact, the kingdom of life and of the resurrection, given again by God in grace. It is the open door of imperishable hope, of waiting and of patience. The tree of life, the cross of Christ, the middle of the fallen and preserved world of God. For us, that is the end of the story of paradise. And here's what Bonhoeffer's saying is that just as in the garden, there was a tree of life meant for us to be in perfect communion with God and sin entered and we were pushed out. But God, in his grace, he sets up a new tree of life. On the hill where where, where Christ is crucified, there's a new tree of life planted. A new paradise for us. A new door open to the garden to have peace with the Lord. Just as Seth was the replacement for Abel, the cross is the replacement for the tree of life. And Christ is our replacement on the cross. God has marked us He's given us a new identity. When he looks at us, he sees the mark of Christ, and he is pleased. We are renewed, and we are restored to peace with God. Let's pray. How great, God, is your love for us. How overwhelming. It is when we can see, Lord, even from the beginning of man, the the brokenness, Lord, and how far we have taken our sin and pulled away from you. And yet, God, we rejoice now, tonight, because it says that you didn't let us just run away, God. You pursued after us. And you created a new Gate, a new opening for us to come back into this garden, Lord, this shalom with you. Praise you, God. I pray that that would penetrate our hearts tonight like it never has before, Lord. The reality of your love for us would become real and tangible, alive to us. And Lord, as we depart from here tonight, Lord, I pray we take that seed of hope, that promise, Lord, that you have crushed the head of the serpent, that death is done, you are victorious, God, and now we can walk in your victory. We love you, God. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.